Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 12th of September 2021, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, How the Bible Presents the Church, the Kingdom of God. Living in occupied territory. That's something, fortunately, that most of us here haven't had to do, have we? Mainly because the English Channel has meant that since 1066, this country hasn't been occupied by a foreign power. And uh, there are some uh, who claim that the absence of that experience within our collective, our cultural memory, has produced quite a distinctive British psyche the absence of collective memory of being invaded, of being occupied. And some people will say that's why Britain has got really quite a different psyche from, say, a French one or an Irish one. And it's got implications for all sorts of political choices. But actually, it doesn't have to be a foreign power that does the occupying, does it? In the last few weeks, I imagine all of us have looked with a certain degree of horror on what it means for the people of Afghanistan to be occupied by the Taliban. That's not occupation really by a foreign power, but it is occupation. And again, it's something still completely beyond the experience of most, perhaps not all, but most of us here. But the perspective of the Bible is that, in a sense, we do live in occupied territory. And that's because of what the Bible says about sin and evil. Now, when we look at the world around us, including this country, we don't have to look far to recognise that things are not as they should be, are they? There are loads of wonderful things in this world, of course there are, but alongside those things we see loads of example of a world that is not as it should be. We see injustice, we see inequality, we see cruelty, we see tragedy, we see hardship, we see disappointment, we see brokenness, and we experience, to some degree, all of those things as well, don't we? And the Bible's answer to why this is the case is that a good world, and it is good, a good world that God made has been invaded. It's been invaded by an alien force called sin or evil. Now that is not in truth a very popular notion today. It can sound to a lot of people, perhaps not those of us who've been brought up in church, we're used to it, but it can sound to a lot of people rather superstitious. It can sound rather a throwback to a pre-scientific age when people came up with explanations because they didn't know science in the way that people know it now. But actually, it explains far too much to be dismissed. Belief in evil doesn't mean believing in literal devils prancing around dressed in red with horns and pitchforks. It means recognising that the biblical pictures that do resemble such images, to some degree, they're usually exaggerated in art, they're metaphors. They're metaphors for a destructive, quasi-personal power that is at large in this world. A power which can all too easily get hold of people, organisations, nations, and corrupt those good intentions that God has for this world and for our lives within it. Well, that's rather a negative start to your first sermon since January, Vicar, you might think. It would be if it wasn't for the bit that's coming next. That would be a negative message if it wasn't for the major thing that Jesus proclaimed, which is coming up now, the kingdom 
of God. Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God constantly, probably more than anything else, certainly in Matthew, Mark and Luke. And what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God, what he meant when he used this term, was the rule of God re-entering the world to claim back that occupied territory. So just think for a moment about the things that Jesus did. We'll be familiar with examples of this for the most part. Jesus brought God's healing to people that were sick, didn't he? People with the most terrible diseases like leprosy, but also people who were paralysed, all sorts of things. God brought, Jesus brought God's healing to them. Jesus not only did that, he brought, perhaps even more importantly, God's forgiveness to people who thought they were unforgivable in some cases. Jesus showed God's love towards those people who no one else would love. And he even, admittedly only on a few occasions, we only know three recorded examples, there may well have been more, Jesus raised some people from the dead. And most mysteriously, but crucial for what we're thinking about this morning, Jesus also drove out demons, didn't he? You get those strange events in the Gospels called exorcisms. So what were they all about? Well, the Jewish people that Jesus came to were very much awaiting the kingdom of God. It's really what their faith was all about. They were an occupied people, quite literally. They had the Romans ruling their country and oppressing them. And the constant hope of most of the Jewish people was that God would act. God would come and rescue them by establishing his rule over the world, by establishing the kingdom of God. And Jesus came as Israel's Messiah to fulfill that hope. Not to do something different, he came to fulfill that hope. But there were two things, at least two things, that made Jesus' take on the kingdom of God very different to what most Jews expected. First of all, by driving out demons, Jesus was showing that the problem was much deeper than simply good Jews versus bad Romans. What Jesus' exorcism showed was that evil, rather than the Romans, was the real enemy. The evil that couldn't just be grouped within one people and say, well, evil's over there in those dreadful Romans. The evil that actually is a much deeper problem than that and runs through every single one of us and runs through the whole of this world that can't be just pigeonholed and limited to a particularly wicked group of people. We might find Jesus' exorcisms rather strange and off-putting. When people choose passages to preach on, rarely will they go for one of those sort of passages. It's much easier to preach on a healing of Jesus or something like that. But the exorcisms are really important in the Gospels And they point to something that I think deep down we know already, that dividing the world into goodies and baddies won't do. It doesn't get us anywhere near the root of the problem. The problem of evil, the problem of sin, is a much deeper one, running to repeat through every single one of us. So that's one thing that made Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God different from what people were expecting. But the other was the way that Jesus spoke about how the kingdom would come. See, most Jews, because they identified the Romans with evil, most Jews expected the kingdom to come in power with the fairly obvious destruction of the Romans. 
But Jesus showed that the kingdom of God actually comes very differently. God's kingdom had come, Jesus said, like a tiny little seed that would grow quietly. In our children's groups this morning, they were planting seeds, and it was fantastic to see their interest in this tiny little seed and planting it in soil. I was going around the groups for a short while during the 9.30 service, and it's captivating to see growth like that. And God's kingdom, Jesus said, is like this tiny little seed that's planted, and it grows largely unnoticed before one day becoming simply enormous. But Jesus said other things about the kingdom as well. God's kingdom will continue to come, Jesus said, through people unbelievably loving their enemies and praying for those who persecuted them. What? God's kingdom was meant to come, in the minds of most people, by evil being destroyed, being defeated. Not by the people who represented it most obviously being loved and prayed for. But that's what Jesus said. That's the way the kingdom is going to come. God's kingdom is going to come, Jesus continued, by being received as by a little child, the most vulnerable people amongst us. And God's kingdom will come, Jesus said, through the love of a loving father, freely welcoming back a son who had completely disowned that father and run away. That, Jesus said, is the way that the kingdom of God would come. That was the way that the occupying power of evil would be overthrown. Not through might, not through obvious destructive power in any sense, but through humble and sacrificial acts of love. Acts of love pointing ahead, of course, to the ultimate way in which sin and evil would be defeated when Jesus died on that Roman cross. That was the decisive moment, of course, wasn't it? When evil in all of its forms and its absolute worst came face to face with the fullness of God's love in Jesus and that evil was defeated when Jesus died on that cross. That's why we call it Good Friday. Love confronts evil at its worst and defeats it and takes away its power and that's the kingdom coming in all its fullness which is why three days later, of course, the resurrection of Jesus occurred to demonstrate that evil, including death itself, was a defeated enemy. So what's any of that got to do with the church? That's what this sermon series is about, isn't it? Well, Jesus called people to belong to him, didn't he? He called people to be disciples, that means learners, of what it means to be part of God's kingdom. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's about how do we as followers of Jesus become part of this kingdom movement? How do we live under the rule of God that Jesus comes to announce? And early on in the Sermon on the Mount, it says this. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill can't be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And that, in a nutshell, is the calling of the church. 
to live as a community that demonstrates to the world what it means, what it looks like to live under the rule of God, and by so doing, to shine a light in a dark world. A light shining in the darkness gives people direction, doesn't it? It gives people reassurance. It gives people hope. It helps them to see something they can focus upon and be drawn towards. And that's what the loving rule of God is meant to be like when people witness to it. Our other passage from Paul said something very similar. Paul's talking to the church at Philippi. The first bit's a bit challenging. We had it as our motto verse over 10 years ago. I remember Trevor Webster was church warden. said, you can't have that as the motto verse at Christ Church. Uh, but we did. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Why? Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold out the word of life. That's what the church is called to be. A shining example of what it means to live under God's rule and the goodness and the attractiveness of living like that. Now, as we sort of relaunch Christchurch at the moment, what we're constantly looking for is signs of how to do that, of how to communicate that. So that's why, not long ago, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote to all of our children and young people before last week's 9.30 service, inviting them back to church. That's why we gave them presents. We wanted to shine a light in the darkness of all the stuff that's gone on recently. That's why it's really important that we're a welcoming church. We have welcomers outside the door at 9.30. I hope we can have that at 11 o'clock as well. I don't want anyone to walk into this church without being welcomed, however late they arrive. But that's why, crucially, our relationships are so important. Our lifestyles and, supremely, our relationships within this church have got to demonstrate sacrificial love. Our relationships have got to display both to us and to a watching world what the kingdom of God is all about. The church, in short, is meant to be a powerful sign to a watching world that the occupying power of evil has been defeated and will one day be driven out. What people have got to see when they see the church is a sign of hope. That evil isn't in charge that love is there and it's powerful and it's active and it's transforming lives. And that's our calling. When I was a child, as some of you know, I was obsessed by a certain figure. And here he is coming up, Robin Hood. Absolutely grabbed me about the age of three and a half and has never really left, if I'm honest. And I've got stacks of Robin Hood films, virtually every Robin Hood film ever made, and lots of books on him as well. Absolutely fascinates me. And one of the things that fascinates me about Robin Hood is that other heroes and heroines have come and gone. You know, throughout the ages, King Arthur was very, very popular for a while and then was rather faded. Other heroes and heroines have come and gone, but Robin Hood is enduringly popular. There are constantly fresh retellings of the story of Robin Hood, aren't there? Every decade, really, a new film or a new TV series comes out. Why is Robin Hood so perennially popular? It's because of what he represents. Right from the early medieval ballads, Robin is someone who's setting up an alternative community in the forest. 
And it's a community that's distinct from the surrounding world with all of its corruption and unfairness and drabness. And as the legend of Robin Hood develops, and more and more is added to it as time goes on, Friar Tuck and Maid Mary in the later editions, you know, it, it, it grows and develops. But as time goes on, Robin's band become his merry men, opposing injustice. And eventually they become a people living on behalf of the true king, awaiting his return and demonstrating their loyalty to him in the meantime by opposing the evil that has usurped his power. And it's fairly obvious, I hope, that there's quite a bit there that can help us to understand the role of the church. Because we too are called to be an alternative community, living lives that celebrate our allegiance to another king in Jesus Christ, a king whom we're promised will one day return and put everything right. So celebration and merriment, if that's the right way to put it, should be a big part of church. Because what we're proclaiming is that however tough things are, there's a good king who's already in charge because we believe in the ascension of Jesus. We don't believe he's going to become king at some time in the future. We believe he's already reigning over this world. And that's what we're here as a church to celebrate and to proclaim. And celebration and merriment is a big part of that. We're proclaiming that a good king is in charge and he'll one day return to put everything right. That's why at our 9.30 service earlier on a Sunday, we have a children's song uh, where we invite all of the children onto this platform to sing their hearts out. And last week when the 9.30 service reconvened, Barbara Griffiths, who chooses the music, chose Our God is a Great Big God. It's a wonderful song of celebration and the words are so crucial because what it's proclaiming loud and clear is our God is strong. There's all of this bad stuff happening in the world. None of it's stronger than God and none of it's stronger than his love. And celebrating that with kids shouting it out and showing joy is all part of what church is meant to be. And our children are at that point witnessing what I was talking about earlier about receiving the kingdom of God like a child. And we need to sometimes follow their very obvious example. There are other aspects of what the kingdom of God means as well, of course. Within the Robin Hood stories, it's uh, interesting that all those who were mistreated and marginalised or down on their luck even, in the stories of Robin Hood, they find support and welcome from the outlaws. And again, when the church lives as the kingdom of God, will likewise be a community that places a priority on welcoming, helping and including people in precisely those situations. People for whom life has on the surface dealt them a really tough set of cards. The church has got to be there for. For people who think everything's against them, perhaps for people who lots of things have gone wrong in their lives, who are tempted to feel that nothing good can happen to them. The church is meant to be there as a community saying, no, that isn't true. Evil isn't in charge and we're welcoming you and we want you here alongside us. But living as the kingdom of God isn't easy. It's not all about celebration. It's not even all about inclusion of those on the margins and so on. One of the things that Jesus makes most clear about the kingdom of God and one of the things that's hardest for Christians, particularly affluent Christians, to recognise is that live under the rule of God 
and the result will always be suffering. Jesus said these words. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples. This was hardly the sort of statement that was going to get more people to follow him. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple, my learner, my learner of the kingdom of God, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus is talking when he speaks those words about the hardship, the suffering that is always involved when we follow him and become part of the kingdom. It's reinforced through the rest of the New Testament as well. On his first missionary journey, Paul, as you will know, travels around planting churches. On the return leg, Luke only includes one word that Paul says to the churches that he's planted on his first missionary journey. There's one sentence, it's about you know, seven or eight words, however many, that Paul says, and those are the words. Paul says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Why does that have to be part of it? It was sounding quite nice up to that point, wasn't it? The reason for this hardship is because when we say we follow another king, and particularly when we do things based on that allegiance, the powers of evil, the occupying powers, won't like it. They'll react, and they'll react really strongly. And when I say this, I'm not really talking just about the sort of invisible powers of evil floating around. I'm talking about where they've become embodied. So if we join, and some of you will know this only too well, if we join an office or a company or a school where a particular culture is present that we stand against, perhaps even criticise because we're a Christian, and we'll pretty quickly suffer for that, particularly if we don't pipe down. We might not be beaten up, but we'll probably be marginalised or ridiculed or made out to be a party pooper or whatever it is. All institutions, sadly including the church, can become corrupt and call this out and the reaction is very often extremely strong. Now it's complex because, as I said earlier, The kingdom of God isn't a question of good is defeating the bad is. Evil runs through every single one of us. So we've always got to say what we say with humility that shows an awareness that we're usually part of the problem. But we've still got that calling. You see, some of the most wonderful prophets that the church has ever had, and here's a couple of them who shared a name, Martin Luther and Martin Luther King, some of the greatest prophets that the church has had have also had the most terrible flaws as well. Both of those men had a prophetic message that needed to be heard, but also had terrible flaws as well in what they did and sometimes what they said. But that doesn't let us off the hook. The church and its members, flawed though we are, every single one of us, are nonetheless called as part of God's people, a part of God's kingdom, to proclaim his kingdom truth to proclaim his kingdom justice in the very concrete situations that come our way and we're called to suffer the pretty tough consequences that always occur when we do this. And suffering is never nice. But it's the kingdom basis of this that enables Paul to say this really weird thing that he actually rejoices in his suffering. Let's see the passage. This is what Paul says. We rejoice in our sufferings 
Why on earth does he say that? Is it because he's some kind of masochist? Well, no. It's because Paul recognised that suffering for being a Christian is a sign of the kingdom coming because of the things that it produces. Suffering produces perseverance, Paul says. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Hope in what? Hope in the completion of God's kingdom yet to come. God's kingdom has arrived, but it's not complete yet. And that's why we have the God's Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Bible says, is the down payment, the deposit for that future that God has promised. Why does he give us the Holy Spirit? Not just as a sort of personal thing to keep us going, but to equip us to be part of that kingdom continuing to come ahead of the day that God brings it to completion. 26 years ago, Katie and I were on our honeymoon in Cornwall. And uh, it was, you know, in the carefree days before children where you could sort of do what you wanted on holiday and that sort of thing. And we went into a tea shop run by a very smiley little old lady. That's not her. I didn't take a photograph. You didn't have phones at the time that could take photographs and that sort of thing. And also, I didn't realise the significance about what was about to happen. And I didn't realise that 26 years later, I would remember this as clear as a bell. Basically, what happened was that this lady served us. And as we sat there drinking our tea and whatever else we had, a scone or whatever, after a few minutes, we saw a rather surly teenager arrive, nod at the lady, and then make his way through the shop to a back room. It's a bit unusual, we thought, but we didn't think much of it. And then a few moments later, the same thing happened. Another surly teenager came in, looked at the woman, nodded at her, she nodded, made his way through the shop and out to a back room. And certainly I and maybe Katie were a little bit nervous about what was going on. Is this some sort of, you know, sort of bullying going on or protection racket or something? So we asked this woman who ran the tea shop fairly gently what was happening. And she opened up to us. She opened up about the fact that she was a Christian and that shortly before his retirement, her husband, and they'd had all these wonderful plans of what they were going to do, he'd suddenly died. He'd suddenly dropped dead, I think, of a heart attack, if I remember rightly. And it left her completely devastated because all of their plans had suddenly gone up in smoke. But, she continued, and she didn't know that we were Christians, because she was a Christian, she decided to keep running that tea shop to try and be a Christian presence within that town. It was somewhere like Bodmin, something like that. I can't exactly remember where it was. And part of that involved her deciding that she would use this room at the back of the tea shop, which otherwise wasn't being used, she'd make it available to the local teenagers as a place where they could hang out. Now, it didn't totally reassure me, if I'm honest, about what those teenagers were up to in the back room, but I haven't forgotten it because it was a shining example of God's presence within this Christian woman who through her suffering, she'd been through a terrible time, lots of people would have understood if she'd just withdrawn completely into herself and led a life that wasn't really trying to do anything at all for anyone else. People would have understood that and sympathised with that. And perhaps not everyone could do precisely what she did. But she was determined to bring a bit of God's loving rule into that town and into those teenagers' lives. She could see... She'd been led to see, I believe, by God. She'd been led by the Holy Spirit 
to see the darkness that sort of surrounded them to some degree. And she wanted to bring a bit of God's light to those teenagers' lives and take back, although she might not have phrased it in this way, a bit of that occupied territory. And it's, I believe, a wonderful example of the calling of the church. The calling that we have, both as individuals and as a community, to establish small, frequently undramatic signs of God's kingdom. Signs of hope. Signs that show that the occupation of this world by the bad stuff, which is perhaps sometimes an easier way to put it for people who struggle with the language of evil, to establish signs that the occupation of this world by the bad stuff isn't going to last. Each week in our services we say the Lord's Prayer. And right at the heart of the Lord's Prayer is that line that says, your kingdom come, your will be done. I don't think it rhymes in every language, but in English it does, which helps us to remember it. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. And that on earth bit is so crucial. The church's task in this messy and often dark world, the calling of Christ church, the calling of every single one of us, is to be part of God's kingdom. Part of God's loving rule over this world. How? By establishing tangible, life-giving signs that God is in charge. That evil isn't in charge and that one day that evil will be totally swept away. People need signs of hope. People who've had enough knocks can think that the bad stuff is definitely in charge. Perhaps more people than not think that's the case. And the church, both us as individuals and us particularly as a community, our calling is to set up life-giving, transforming, loving signs that that isn't the case. Things that will bring hope to people when they encounter that. Because without hope, there's very little that uh, can be done to help people make progress. But once people have hope, amazing things can then happen. And we're called by God, every single one of us, and particularly as a community altogether, we are called to establish those signs of hope. So that people, when they encounter the church, when they encounter Christians, they suddenly have more hope because they realise that God's love really does exist, that it's tangible, that it's transforming. That's when they'll start engaging with all the doctrine that we believe once they see that that is the explanation of why this makes sense. But what they've got to see in the first place is a love that really makes a difference, that's really powerful, that transforms lives, that gives them hope. Now think for a few minutes about where you're going to be at this time tomorrow. Where are you going to be at, uh, what's the time, 11.52 on Monday morning? You might be by yourself, but you might be with others. And later in the day you might be. It might be that you chat someone over the fence or whatever. How are we being called by what we do to offer signs of hope to those around us? By sharing in whatever way God's love, sharing a bit of God's rule, showing that the bad stuff isn't in charge and isn't going to win. The opportunity is that if people have experienced enough bad stuff, the light that we shine shines that much more brightly, actually. So if you encounter people for whom life is very, very dark indeed, in some ways it's a greater opportunity to shine that light because the darkness is so strong. 
but also we need to think about this as a church. And this is where in the past the community cafe and grapevine and all sorts of uh, parts of this church, the community offered at Women's Own and uh, Connections and so on, have played a crucial role. And we've got to think as a church moving forward about as we relaunch all of those things and other things that we do as well, thinking about the stuff that we can do as a church to be that light shining for God's kingdom. To give people tangible signs of hope. Signs that uh, aren't just a notice of something about to happen in the future, but are signs that affect and transform people's lives now. That's the calling of the church. That's what it means to be part of God's kingdom. And let's pray now that God can help us to do that, both in our individual lives and as a church community. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you haven't left a world in darkness, a world trapped in sin and evil, that you've brought that liberation of the coming of your rule over this world, that when Jesus came, he brought the coming of your kingdom. We thank you for all the signs of that that Jesus brought. And we thank you for this calling that you've given us as your people to be the light of the world. Would you help us to shine that light? Would you help us both in our individual lives, in how we relate to our neighbours, to people delivering food, whatever it might be? Would you help us to shine a light for you through our words and our deeds? And would you help us as a church as well? We pray for the group starting up. We pray for Women's Own meeting on Thursday. We pray for connections. We pray for Men Behaving Dadly, our dads and toddlers group starting up next Saturday. Lord God, would you lead every single part of this church to be shining a light for you? Show us new ways of doing it. By your Holy Spirit, inspire the ways that we've done this for some time to continue doing that work. And we ask for your blessing on all these groups, men at home, home groups, our services here. We ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.